0: Welcome, learners and learn it alike, to help teach. Hello, and welcome to our community audio project. I am your host, editor, producer, and project co lead, Mihai Kovasar. I'm also a youth living with a physical disability. My most formative experiences living with a disability have come in the Canadian public education system. Many students like me with physical, emotional, or mental challenges go through their years of schooling lacking the supports and accommodations they need to partake of the same opportunities offered to their peers. The vision of this project is to provide educators in Canadian classrooms, students with disabilities, and members of the general public with the tools and knowledge that they need to make our institutions more accessible and inclusive for all. Join me and a diverse cast of guests as we explore perspectives on disabilities in education in this podcast series. One last message for you teachers tuning in, listen in each episode for our key takeaway that you can implement in your classroom today to help us further this vision. And today, I'd love to welcome one of my uh, co-leads on this project, Alexis Holmgren for a conversation today. Alexis, nice to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, why don't you start by uh, introducing yourself to our audience here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, what you're up to, uh, whatever you'd like to say there.
1: Thanks, Mihai. So, hello everyone, my name is Alexis. I am from Red Deer, Alberta. I'm 21 years old, and I am currently a volunteer, an advocate for the rare disease community, and also an advocate for diversity, inclusion, and accessibility.
0: And why don't you tell us a little bit about maybe what you've achieved or what projects or initiatives you'd like to talk about?
1: It's always really hard for me to figure out, I guess, what to mention about achievements because, yeah, the expectation right now is that for me, I should, should, like in quotation marks, be in university. All of my friends who are my same age are finishing their four-year degrees. They're all graduated this year. It's it's hard. Like, that's typically how society defines success is by what degrees or by what titles you have. And I don't really have that. I've been on like the Global Disability Summit panel. I've written programming for the national program platform which replaced conventional program books at girl guides about specifically visible and invisible identities and i really based that on my experience living with disabilities
0: absolutely alexis here is uh one of our as supporters in a lot of our causes and events. Uh, her portfolio is quite extensive and I think we'll we'll talk about some of that here today but it's great to have you here to, uh, to have a bit of a conversation. You mentioned the fact that you advocate for the rare disease community so I'd love to hear a little bit about what that means you know what kind of obstacles you're living with and uh, what it is that you're advocating for.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I live with three rare genetic disorders, two of which are actually life-threatening in nature. And I was diagnosed with my first one at age 12. And that was when I really started facing a lot of, especially attitudinal barriers. People decided essentially on my behalf that I couldn't do things. With rare conditions, it's kind of challenging because there isn't that awareness piece. People typically, when they hear the name of any one of my conditions, their first instinct is, I have no idea what that is. Living with rare disease is very different for different people, but for me, I have a life-threatening heart condition with a pacemaker defibrillator implant that I got when I was 17. I am... Allergic to the sunlight, which is unfortunately anaphylactic, and that's a huge barrier for me to participation in a lot of things. I need to carry EpiPens for that. I also live with a joint condition called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, so that affects all of my joints and causes chronic pain, chronic fatigue, easy injuries, affects the way that I'm able to move, how far I can walk, things like that. I navigate life with a cane and knee braces, ankle braces, (laughs) wrist braces, lots of braces, and a (laughs) part-time wheelchair user as well.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, Yeah, just to Clarify for those uh, audience members that maybe don't know what we're talking about here. Um, Yes, it is uh, possible to react to UV light and to sunlight in the same way that, um, you know, someone with a nut allergy reacts to an open jar of peanut butter. And um, anaphylactic uh, is a term that refers to those severe... um, allergic reactions that you see with swelling and shortness of breath, um, the same uh, that EpiPens are used to treat, so um, just a bit of clarification for our audience there. And I know that you mentioned in uh, our previous conversations that another w- one of the sort of obstacles from other people that you face is that people don't really know, they have no expectations for, for what it's like to live in the way that you do, how to treat you, how to go about uh, learning about your conditions and talking to you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Definitely. I think this is one of the most challenging things I face in daily life. Even on first glance, without knowing anything about me, they see I'm a young person who uses a cane and mobility aids, but otherwise I look fine. And so it's very confusing to be able to, I guess, reconcile that with stereotypical thoughts of what a certain disability should look like or who it should impact, which doesn't make much sense when my conditions are genetic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's almost a full second job to constantly be educating people on your conditions when you live with a rare disease because people don't know about them, they don't know how to treat you, they don't know... What accommodations you might need, and for sure, living with a disability in general—that is definitely the case a lot of the time. But with a rare condition, there's just none of that frame of reference or any previous mm. experience, and it's like you're teaching them multiple things at once—not just how it affects you on an individual level, but also the concept of the condition itself and how it works. Quite often.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can. I can see how that would. Uh, how that would be an issue for people um, you know we we discussed in our last episode when I had on uh, Elise Doucette um, this concept of invisible disabilities right and the fact that it can be quite difficult to be someone with conditions that don't present themselves immediately visually uh, and to still have to you know to then have to bring the conversation up with people that yeah I do have a disability and it affects me in the following ways and um, you know as it can be i think a lot of the time our discussions like this are met with maybe discomfort or or fear of the unknown from from people is that right
1: there's definitely a lot of fear in my case i think people hear life threatening or One of the second names for my heart condition is it belongs to a family of different disorders called sudden arrhythmia death syndromes, and what a positive name, right? (laughs) (laughs) With death right in the name, it's it's hard. Like it definitely scares people, and honestly, fair enough. Like I think if I was on the other side and I was seeing perhaps on a health form maybe for school or an extracurricular that that was the case, I can understand the. Initial fear and people also worry that something will go wrong and it will be their fault. Mm-hmm. But with my condition, especially my heart condition. It can happen anytime. Like, it's a 24 7, pretty unpredictable condition. And that's the entire point of why I have my own implanted defibrillator, because you can't predict when that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so, it definitely is never going to be someone's fault if that occurs and I happen to be with them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's something that uh, I'm definitely familiar with, despite, you know, having a, a much less severe. Um kind of disability and, and uh, my, my circumstances are less severe in that sense. But I definitely I know what you mean. I mean, going through elementary school, especially right, the having uh, CAs and other support staff um, helping me around all the time in, in elementary school, I would uh, often be discouraged from participating in certain activities that could possibly end up being dangerous for me because you know it's it's hard to take on that kind of liability right as a as as school staff and uh, I mean you know you wouldn't say to a kid who's climbing on the monkey bars that oh don't do that because you might get hurt I mean people fall and scrape their knee all the time right that's just part of being a kid but when you have uh, a disability and maybe that risk is slightly increased it definitely becomes uh, the the bureaucracy sets in a little bit right with with regard to that Um, so so how how have schools impacted you then in your experience so the sort of administration of, of public schools with regard to dealing with uh, your case and uh, and providing you with those services how has that been in your experience?
1: I've had a very wide range of experiences there actually, when I was in the public school system and I was officially diagnosed with my heart condition. I was 12 years old and so I had already kind of started going through school. I've had the condition my whole life. I had had symptoms from about age 9, 10 years old, so they just were missed because it is a rare condition that is poorly recognized typically. And so even by doctors and so having that kind of previous experience with people was interesting because it definitely changed the way people treated me like teachers, principals, administration, as well as fellow students it was suddenly about, yeah, it was suddenly about liability rather than who I was as a person a lot of the time. Mm. And it was about, like, you can't make us enforce certain policies because of the way the laws are set up in Alberta. And so I ended up having to leave actual in-person or school, whether I had wanted to or not, and start up online because... Mm my school would not get an AED, which is an automated external defibrillator used to treat people who go into cardiac arrest. And they wouldn't do that. And even if I had brought my own AED to school, they said that they wouldn't use it. And my school was about 10 to 15 minutes away from the hospital by response time, assuming that response was really good. And that would have meant almost certain death, unfortunately, because the chances of survival of sudden cardiac arrest go down by 10% for every one minute that you go without help. Mm-hmm. And so that would be essentially zero. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was obviously not something that I or my parents were comfortable with. And it was a very long, very challenging almost battle that we fought with that. We took it to the principal, and then when he wouldn't listen, we took it to the superintendent, and then when he wouldn't listen, we took it up to the minister of education, and we got exactly nowhere on that. We got informed that AEDs under Alberta's laws are under labor laws, meaning that they only believe the people who would need AEDs to be teachers, staff, adults, administration, because young people, of course, stereotypically don't have heart conditions, which is definitely not true considering heart conditions in general, congenital heart defects are one in a hundred. So not my condition specifically, but still, that's a lot of children out there who do have heart conditions of varying degrees. And so it just made no sense, of course.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's something perhaps quite unexpected for our audience to hear, but an important statistic to mention, right? Because there are, I guess there are certain impressions that, you know... I, there are certain impressions that people have about disability that we talk about all the time, right? That um, maybe people with physical disabilities are automatically perceived to have some kind of mental disability as well. Or, um, you know, that people with certain uh, disabilities can't necessarily participate in certain activities just because that's how it is. But then, you know, there are some things that we rarely think about. For example, uh, having a heart condition and, and, and needing an AD, the fact that that's not exclusive to people. Uh, to Adults and to, and to older people, so I think that's quite interesting for our audience to hear. Thanks for thanks for expanding on that. And um, I think that's uh, quite a perfect place to take a little break here. Uh, but don't go anywhere, audience members. When we come back, we're going to be transitioning to talking a bit about that shift to online schooling and Alexis's experience and the attitudinal barriers that are in place for people with disabilities to really achieving their potential. So don't go anywhere, we'll be right back. Hello, and welcome back to Help Teach, where I'm talking to Alexis Holmgren. Uh, The last of the co-leads on this community audio project and we just finished our uh, discussion in the first half mentioning briefly your transition to um, Online schooling and from the public education system for your safety and comfort Um, and one of the things that you mentioned to me was there the your transition was also based on this idea of um, some chronic pain right that you're experiencing from your uh, diagnoses and the the fact that there's maybe stigma around that and I think that'll move really nicely to what we want to talk about in the second half on attitudinal barriers so what did you want to tell me about that Uh, so how was that transition for you and and what motivated that
1: yeah, for sure. Chronic pain is something that is so stigmatized in society in general, but then add in being a young person, and then add in being a young person with additional disabilities, and it is really, really difficult. My pain is 24-7. I am never without pain. Like, I, my entire life, I have never been without knowing pain of some variety. That is unfortunately my reality and it got much worse around age 16 and then I developed a form of rare nerve pain at 17. So I carry a lot of pain and with that comes some limitations in my life. It means that it's more difficult to say book things like exams because I never knew if I chose to write a test on a day if I was actually going to be able to write a test on that day. It was really difficult, and sometimes it would be that I'd have to send my teacher a message at like 8 o'clock in the morning and say, I can't even get out of bed today, I'm sorry. It also plays into the lower expectations, like then you have people who do believe that you have pain, but then they're like, okay, well you have pain, so you can't do any of the things that you want to do. Or on the other hand, you have the people who see that you're doing all of these things and say, okay, well, you definitely can't have pain then. And it's this catch-22 cycle where I never win anyway. (laughs) So I just try not to think about that because it's, yeah, there's no winning in it. You either faced out of the legitimacy of your pain because you're doing things or you're told you can't do things because your pain is legit.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So... To pick that up from the first half, you were just talking about uh, transitioning to online school from, from public school, the fact that, um, you know, you you had to do that for your safety and for your comfort. But why don't you tell us a little bit about the story of um, what they told you in uh, physical public school prior to you making that switch about, um, you know, your journey in, in education. I know that you've told me that story and it's uh, quite an interesting one.
1: Yeah. That one, interestingly enough, actually was it an online school. It wasn't my new online school. And what happened... Was it? Yeah. So I definitely have had a big variety of reactions from different people. And... It was so unexpected because I had been there for probably a year already at this point and my health had deteriorated which fine that just typically means we reassess and kind of go back and see what new supports are needed and that's kind of what I thought the conversation I was going into would be about with the guidance counselor. I thought we would be talking about, okay, my goal is to become a geneticist or a genetic counselor. How do we help me get there? But instead, the conversation was you really need to check your expectations for yourself, and you really should probably consider dropping out as soon as you turn 16 because you're never going to make it in this anyway. Well, wow. And that, I think, was one of the most devastating things I've heard in my educational career probably I felt I felt just so almost squished into the floor like just wanted to disappear I felt very mortified that that was other people's perception of me that the assumption was that I couldn't do anything like I had just had the bad news that my health was getting worse and I didn't need kind of this on top of it when I thought that school was something that was one of the few consistent things in my life.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's devastating. I mean, obviously, we've all, I think, as People with disabilities but also uh, our audience members listening teachers members of the general public I think we've all heard horror stories about administration you know and bureaucracy getting in the way of um, of people trying to achieve what they want to achieve within any given institution right Um, one of these (laughs) cases that is quite famous quite a talking point around uh, the disabled youth community is the is IEPs, ISPs, whatever you want to call them. They've changed names about a hundred thousand times, but they're really the same chimera, the same uh, bureaucratic abomination. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Alexis? What 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 is an IEP, ISP, whatever you want to call it, and how did it affect you?
1: I think a bureaucratic abomination is such a good <laughs> definition, though. But yes, yeah, so an IEP is typically an individual education plan, and that is a document that is meant to be formal, but interestingly enough is not enforceable. And it's meant to include accommodations for people with disabilities in education. And mine specifically, I went to my doctor to do kind of the pre-work, get his note about what he like knew that I needed and various accommodations. My case is complicated because you're mixing multiple rare conditions that no one's Mm -hmm. heard of. And so it was this interesting mix of things. And then it was a decent list, but it, it was nothing that was out there like they were all pretty normal stuff like extra time or being able to write exams from home so that I wouldn't be exposed to the sun things like that Mm -hmm. but then we brought that list to the school to the administration and that was when I discovered that It wasn't actually my doctor who had the say of what went in the final IEP. It was actually the school. And they got to decide what of what he recommended ended up in that final document. And then even what ended up in the document wasn't enforceable anyway. It was a very confusing and kind of painful process, honestly.
0: I can just imagine that conversation so... Let's look at this list here. So Alexis needs access to an AD so that, you know, she doesn't suddenly uh, have a situation that, you know, would leave her in, in critical danger uh, and close access to a hospital. Yeah, that all makes sense. Uh, except, yeah, we're probably just going to take, like, having a, an extra staff member check in on her once a week to make sure that things are all right. That, 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 that'll be fine. Well, <laughs> that'll be enough for our, our purposes. Like, wh- how, how does that kind of conversation take place? Um... Yeah, I mean, similarly, in my experience, it, it took quite a fight to actually get my parents involved in what goes into my IEP. But as you say, especially having it enforced, I think that that's something that is really lacking across the institution is um, actually having documents that are somehow binding that uh, make administrators and staff members actually follow our recommendations and our needs right in order to have us included that's something that um is is often difficult to to achieve for us you know i like to bring up here a motto that you and i know b- both very well and uh the one that our audience members should hear which is nothing about us without us uh, again that's nothing about us without us which is it's a model that we like to use a lot at the Rick Hansen Foundation and it's quite popular among uh, amongst our community and it basically means if you're going to make any kind of bureaucratic decision if you're gonna make changes if you're gonna make anything to do with us make sure that we're there to tell you you know to, to be consulted and to tell you what it is that we really need and to make sure that that gets there for for us to access because otherwise you're just throwing solutions, at problems that you don't know about, that you don't know exist, maybe.
1: Yeah, it's really about not just being at the table, but actually having our input heard and put into place with that. Because when things are about people with disabilities, it certainly shouldn't be people without disabilities making choices based on assumptions of what we actually need.
0: Yeah, for sure. So then... Uh, I'll ask you a little bit about. Uh, we mentioned this at the beginning of this second half, um, attitudinal barriers, which we've talked about throughout. But just to uh, expound a bit upon it, what does that mean to you? What is what is an attitudinal barrier, and um, you know what? What what did you want to say on that in your experience?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of attitudinal barriers in education, I've found, and they can come from the teachers, they can clearly come from the guidance counselors, from Mm. administration, from honestly anyone, and it's really, in my experience, there is this preconceived notion that people with disabilities are, by default, less than everyone else, will achieve less in their lives. Um, shouldn't have high goals or aspirations. There's also a lot of dehumanization of people with disabilities in general, and also in education. We're seen Mm -hmm. as often a problem or some extra item on an agenda that no one wants to show up to the meeting for. (laughs) Like, it's really... Yeah, we're not seen as other students. We're not seen in the same way Mm -hmm. as our peers Mm -hmm. are. And that's, and it's not seen as how can I help you get to where you would like to go in life with your goals. It's always, okay, what is the absolute lowest bar, but we can still get you passing through our school typically. Like, I try to do things because my biggest motto in life, whether in education or just existing, is that I want to live my life. I don't just want to be surviving because at the end of the day, it is still an accomplishment for me that I'm alive right now um, because living with life-threatening conditions, that is never a guarantee and it's something that I don't take for granted, but it's also I don't want to spend my life in a way that isn't meaningful to me like I want to do things that matter I want to do things that make a difference and I want to enjoy like my life in whatever way I can for however long that may be
0: wonderfully put that's uh that's really moving I'm sure our audience will agree I think that's a great place to transition to sort of the end of our episode here and our key takeaway so assuming that you're an educator out there and you see those signs we have some suggestions for you for what you can do. And, you know, I think you'll hear us mention something similar in a few episodes in the future, but that's because, first of all, you know, running a podcast, being advocates, vocal advocates, we really appreciate the um, value of sharing lived experience and having conversations, but also because it really is an effective tool. So, Alexis, why don't you uh, do the honors and tell us a little bit about what educators can do to help out in this particular situation? Definitely.
1: Definitely it really comes back to having a conversation with your students who do have disabilities about their goals and it's not just about their immediate needs their accommodations or their problems it's about what they actually want to do in life and how you as an educator or a principal or an administrator whatever your role is in the school can help them get there and that might look like asking them what are your expectations for me as an educator maybe what would you like to achieve in my class and maybe even how can I help you to achieve that and that really helps us as students know that you're there for us you're wanting us to succeed and also it can help educators change their mindset from seeing us as a medical case um, that just is a chore to be dealt with to an actual human being and a student with aspirations and potential in life
0: absolutely very well put Well, thank you so much for joining here today on this episode, Uh, Alexis. It was wonderful to talk to you. You had some great insights and I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You've just heard another episode of the Community Audio Project, Help Teach. I'd like to give a huge thank you to my other co-leads on this project, Peyton Given, Peggy Manning, Elise Doucette, and Alexis Holmgren all youth leaders at the Rick Hansen Foundation, who I'd also like to thank for their continued support in this initiative and others. Big thank you to Every Canadian Counts and their hashtag RisingYouth Initiative for funding this project. I'd like to give a huge shout out to our community mentor for this project, Charles Kutsia, and to our professional contact helping in the editing process, Chester Hall. My name is Miha Kovasser. I'm your host, editor, and producer for this podcast series, and you can look forward to finding this podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts soon. Also, in the show description on either site, you will be able to find a link directly to my website where we will be posting transcripts for each episode for whoever would like to access those. And any further links to other resources will also be put in the show description. So everything that I talked about in this episode, you can find handy in the notes once we post it. Tune in next time for more great conversations and key takeaways that you educators can implement in the classroom today to make it a more accessible and inclusive place for all. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.